going to be a, a kind of an unusual month for us here at Country Oaks. There's a, a few changes that are happening, maybe one that you've noticed. Um, we've painted the sanctuary and have changed the colors, and we're in process of doing that. Um, we are going to be redoing this pulpit, and so I don't know when, but at some point this pulpit won't be here and there'll be a temporary one. I just want to let you know that we're going to uh, kind of update it and fix some of the cracks and some of the things that are in this pulpit. It's coming back, and if you've been around Country Oaks long enough, you know there's sentimental value to this pulpit. Uh, Andy preached on it for 30 years, and him and his father made it together, and so we want to make sure we keep this. So it'll be coming back. Um, last week, we had a business meeting, and uh, there was a number of changes that we're making uh, to our bylaws, and we presented them last week. And we have 30 days as a congregation to look over those changes, and then we'll be voting on those changes um, coming up here soon at the annual business meeting. And uh, the next two Sundays are going to be unusual, too, because a group of churches are coming together, uh, preaching on the same subject next Sunday, and we've been invited to join and the following Sunday. So there's two particular topics that the church is going to a group of churches are taking a stand on next Sunday and the Sunday after that, and we've decided as an elder board to join in with this, meaning we are not going to be back in the book of Exodus till the end of this month. So as I was getting prepared this week to do a sermon, I was debating, do I jump into Exodus and then wait two weeks and jump back into Exodus? And I've decided that I think what would be better use of our time this morning is really just kind of to ha- handle some some church business, Country Oaks business this morning, meaning I want to look at some of these changes that we are presenting to the congregation um, in the bylaws. I think it's important that we understand the changes and the reasons behind them, the biblical reasons behind them for these changes. So there are several changes that we're making, but there's really only three main changes that that we'll see in the bylaws. And I want to cover those three changes. And um, we're going to spend most of our time, just to warn you, with the first change. We're going to get towards lunchtime. And you're going to be, we're still on the first change. Um, the second two, we've already done sermons recently uh, um, about these changes that we're making in the bylaws. And so I'll go over them, but uh, there are already a couple sermons on them. And if you want to hear those sermons, I'll be able to point you to them. But We'll go over why we're making the changes, but we're going to spend most of our time on this first change. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the changes in the bylaws, and the first change is on page three of the bylaws, and I'm hoping it'll be on the board. There it is. It currently reads, the scriptures, Old and New Testament, are the divinely inspired word of God and infallible in their original writings. The proposed change is to add the word inerrant. The purpose, or the proposed amendment then, is this. The scriptures, Old and New Testament, are the divinely inspired word of God and infallible and inerrant in their original writings. The purpose for this change is that in recent years, the word infallible has become weakened, and some theologians and denominations have proposed that the Bible is infallible and yet contains some errors. The word inerrant conveys that the scripture... um, contains no errors whatsoever. Now, I just want to be clear, infallible is not necessarily wrong. In fact, scriptures are infallible. Um, In the history of the church, really, the the word infallible 
was considered synonymous with inerrancy. But around the 1960s, the word infallible was hijacked by theological liberals who wanted to kind of hide their radical beliefs on Scripture. So they claimed the Bible was infallible, yet quietly they held to the belief that the Bible was full of errors. In their belief, the Bible was infallible, but not inerrant. So let me explain. Inerrancy simply means without error. According to the book Biblical Doctrine, and I'm taking a lot um, from this book in our sermon this morning, um, this is what they say about inerrancy, and I think this is a good definition. When inerrancy is applied to Scripture, it means that the Bible is without error in their original copies. It is therefore free, when properly interpreted, from affirming anything that is untrue or contrary to fact. And I think that's a great definition of inerrancy. It's what we believe as a church, as an elder board. Infallibility, on the other hand, means unable to mislead or fail in accomplishing the divinely intended purpose. Now, that's true. We believe that. But without the clarification of the word inerrancy, it could be misunderstood that we think that the, there are many errors in Scripture, even though it's infallible. I just want to be clear that we reject this belief as a church. We are inerrantists. That if interpreted correctly, there are no errors in Scripture. Why? The question I want to answer, why do we believe this? Because after all, isn't Scripture written by man? And to be human is what? Error, right? In fact, Scripture itself uh, says that man is sinful and fallible. So isn't Scripture written by man? Yes, Scripture is written by men, but men inspired by God. In other words, God made sure that every word written by man was the exact words he wanted written. Let me again read from the book Biblical Doctrine. It says this, God through his spirit inspired every word pen by the human authors in each of the 66 books of the Bible in the original documents. Inspiration describes a process of divine causation behind the authorship of Scripture. It refers to the direct act of God on the human author that results in the creation of perfectly written revelation. In other words, God, even though Scripture was written by man, God is the ultimate author of Scripture, and therefore, no errors. Inspiration conveys the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he used the individual, and this is important, the individual's personality, language, style, and historical conduct of each writer to produce divinely authoritative writings. In other words, God inspired men to write by using their styles, their historical contexts, their personalities, their education, even their language. Therefore, Scripture was truly written by man. The works were truly the product of both the human author and the Holy Spirit. This is sometimes called the dual authorship of Scripture. Right? Men wrote, moved, or carried, or inspired by God. Therefore, if you get to the human, right, the human's intended meaning of Scripture, if, you, if you're interpreting Paul and you get to his intended meaning, that's where you find God's intended meaning because God has inspired the human author. God inspired Paul. This is 
what I believe is exactly what Second Peter chapter 1.20 tells us, knowing that f- this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke. The humanness in there. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is affirming the dual authorship of Scripture. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul tells us too. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So although man wrote scripture, man was inspired by God, making God the ultimate author. And also making scripture profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In other words, God's word is used in our righteousness, in our growth in righteousness, in our sanctification. God's word is what's used to sanctify us. This is exactly what Jesus said about Scripture. Right? Listen to John seventeen fifteen. Jesus in this chapter is praying for the disciples. And he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, the disciples, but, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's profitable. For sanctification, right? This is the same thing that Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's sanctification. Jesus also clearly affirmed the dual authorship of scripture. Right? Scripture, for Jesus, was the Old Testament. And I think we can learn how to handle scripture as a whole by how Jesus handled the Old Testament was written by man, inspired by God. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark twelve thirty six. He says this, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Then he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus clearly implies that David wrote Psalm 110 in the Holy Spirit. In other words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God. In fact, it's because of this belief, the inspiration of Scripture, that Jesus had a very, very, very high view of Scripture. Just a side note. If we're going to model our lives after Jesus, shouldn't we handle and view the Word, right, Scripture, the same way he did? In fact, I, I just find it ironic that there are many people that deny the inerrancy of Scripture, but claim at the same time to have a very high view of Jesus, and especially his teaching, saying he was a really good teacher. Yet, they completely ignore what he taught about Scripture. They ignore how he used Scripture. In other words, he was a really good teacher besides that part. Listen to what Jesus had to say about Scripture. I just want you to see that he had a very, very high view of Scripture. Let me just explain. Jesus appealed to the authority of Scripture when he battled his greatest foe, right? Satan. In the wilderness, 
right? Three times when he was fasting, Satan attacked Jesus with lies. And three times, and all three times, Jesus responded with scripture. In fact, he responded from the book of Deuteronomy. Listen to, to just this one response, because this is 40 days without eating. Think about that for a second. Jesus truly human, meaning he was hungry. He was human, just as human as any of us were. He was hungry, 40 days worth. And Jesus told Satan this in Matthew 4, 4. It is written, meaning this is scripture. It is written, he quotes Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, while Jesus was almost starving to death, he says God's word is just as important, if not more important, than food itself. Let me just ask you, do you treat God's word that way? I mean, we have to eat daily. Do you treat God's word as if it is more important than food? That's what Jesus claims. Jesus also appealed to the authority of scriptures when interacting with the Jewish religious leaders. Over and over again, when he interacted with the Pharisees and Sadducees and they were attacking Jesus, trying to trap Jesus, he responded by saying, have you not read? Have you not read? He was appealing to the authority of scripture, but... That was actually a rebuke to people that should have known the Old Testament extremely well to go, have you not read? He was rebuking them. Let me give you one example. Matthew 19, 3 says this, and the Pharisees came up to him and, and um, tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce, divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them, uh, created them from the beginning made them male and female? What's he quoting? Genesis. Again, Jesus had a high view of Scripture. Jesus appealed to the authority of Scripture to testify about his own identity, who he was. Let me give you just one example, and I think the implications of this passage are extremely important. Turn with me to Luke 24, verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection. It says this, that day two of them, that's talking about two disciples of Jesus here. Again, verse 13, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. This is after Jesus' death, meaning this is the resurrected Jesus. He is walking with these two disciples. But look what verse 16 says. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, that means supernaturally, God did not let these two disciples recognized that the man walking with them was Jesus. He hid that truth from them as Jesus interacted with them. Verse 17. And and you should ask the question, by the way, why? That's weird, right? Verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named uh, Cleopas answered him, 
Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, this is Jesus, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deeds and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying um, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those um, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Let's pay attention to that word, see. They didn't see him. You know, at this point, if I were Jesus, it's a good thing I'm not. At this point, if I were Jesus in this moment, I would be like, it's me. <laughs> like, I'm right here. In fact, I would be extremely upset that they didn't listen to what I have said over and over and over again, that I was about to die and be raised on the third day. It's exactly what Jesus said, and I would have rebuked these two disciples and said, why didn't you believe me? That's not what Jesus does. Why? I believe Jesus doesn't want them to rely on their sight. Why? Because experience and sight often leads people astray. It's unreliable. It's errant. So Jesus does something different. Look what he does in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Not what he said, not what the women testified to, but the prophets have spoken. That's the Old Testament. That's scripture. Verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Why does he say, was it not necessary? Because scripture can't be wrong. And scripture said this would happen. Therefore, it was necessary for him to die and be raised on the third day. Why don't you believe? Then, verse 27, it says this, and beginning with Moses, that's Genesis, the Pentateuch, right, the first five books of Scripture, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's just a shorthand way of saying the whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the Scripture the things concerning himself. Let me just ask, if you started in Genesis and went all the way through the minor prophets and you took out every place that pointed to Jesus, how long do you think that'd take? Yeah, a long time. Why would Jesus sit here with these two disciples veiling what he looked like and sit there for hours teaching them scripture? Because Jesus had a very high view of scripture. He treats it as infallible, inerrant, and authoritative. And he, he, he sees it as more reliable than sight, right? It's clear Jesus wanted these disciples and all of the disciples, if you continue with the story, to base their beliefs off of the authority of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture, the truthfulness of Scripture. Listen, 
Jesus didn't treat the Old Testament as myth or made up stories or having mistakes. It was foundational to belief. In fact, Jesus handled the Old Testament as if it was inerrant. No errors. Let me give you some examples. Jesus affirmed the historicity of the persons talked about in the Old Testament. Right? Adam and Eve, Matthew 19, 4 through 5. Cain and Abel, Matthew 23, 35. Abraham, John 8, 56. Noah, Lot and his wife, Luke 17, 28 and 32. Moses, John 3, 14. I could just keep going. David, Solomon, the queen of Sheba, Matthew 12, 42. Daniel, Jonah. Jesus affirmed the historicity of these people, that they were real people. And he also affirmed the historicity of the places and events that surrounded them. He treats the Old Testament stories as historically accurate, not made-up stories or myths. Again, if Jesus is truly our teacher, if he's truly our example, as many claim, shouldn't we handle God's word in the same way he did? I think we should. Thankfully, we don't have to guess how Jesus handled God's word. He quotes the Old Testament over and over and over and over and over again. We know his views on Scripture. We know how he used Scripture. We know how he handled Scripture. And listen, we know how he interpreted Scripture. Jesus interpreted Scripture as if it was inerrant. To the smallest detail. In Matthew 5.18, he says, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I just want to give you three examples of how Jesus interpreted Scripture just to show that, that he believed it was inerrant. The first example, if you would, turn to John 10, verse 31. John 10, verse 31. The story just picks up right off the bat. It starts this way. The stones, or the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is like a common thing for Jesus. He lived an exciting life. Um, him and Paul, right? Always a threat of stonings and beatings. Right? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. That's the context, right? The Jews are about to kill Jesus. Let me be clear on that. When you pick up stones... Right? You're about to kill someone. And they want to kill him because of his claims and teachings. Therefore, the context here is this is a life or death situation. Right? And Jesus is going to, to say a few words to stop the stoning from happening. And look at what he says. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, and it's not for the good works that you are going or that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's why they're going to stone him. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written? What's that? First of all, it's a rebuke. Second of all, he's referring to scripture. Is it not written in your law? He calls it your law. Again, that's a rebuke. Right? Scripture, and he quotes one sentence here. I said you are gods. That's it. 
And this is what he says in verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. Now there's a couple things about this interaction that I want to point out. First, Jesus calls scripture as the word of God. He just equates that. In other words, that's his view in scripture. The word of God, scripture, that's the same thing. God speaks through the word, right? Look at verse 35. To whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. The second thing I want to point out is he says scripture cannot be broken. This is his high view of scripture. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. It cannot be broken. The third thing I want to point out is this. He bases his whole argument off the use of one word. Think about that. The word gods. Now, don't get sidetracked by this argument because I know it has confused a lot of people. It was actually a good, this is actually a really interesting argument and what he's doing here. But I don't want you to get sidetracked by that right now. The point I'm trying to make today is that Jesus is basing this whole argument, right? Life or death situation. They're about to stone him. He bases the whole argument off of one word in scripture. Again, verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Jesus's whole argument is based off one word. Listen, the only way Jesus makes such an argument is if he believed that the word of God is inerrant down to individual words. Let me show you another example. Turn to Matthew 22, verse 41. 22, verse 41. And it says this, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Jesus here is going on the offense, right? So he asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? That's the Messiah, the Greek word for Messiah. What do you think about the Messiah, the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, the son of David. This is really an obvious answer in the Old Testament. The Messiah clearly in the Old Testament is prophesied to come from the lineage of David, from the line of David. He will be a son of David. The New Testament confirms this too. But look what Jesus does in verse 43. He says to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, we already talked about this, David's writing, but he's inspired by the spirit, right? In the spirit calls him Lord saying, then he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. Now again, David's the author here, so he's the one that said, the Lord, that's Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, listen to Jesus and just think of the logic here. Verse 45. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? This Lord that David's talking about obviously predates David. Right? This Lord that David's talking about obviously has more authority than David. Because David calls him my Lord. 
in Psalm 110. Now, Jesus is basing this argument off of two things. One, that David is truly the author of Psalms 110, that there's no mistakes in who authored that psalm. And two, the grammar of one sentence. The Lord said to my Lord, right? One personal pronoun, my. Jesus can only make this argument if he believed the word was inerrant. Down to the personal pronouns, the word my. Otherwise, my could be an error. Or David may not have been the true author of Psalm 110. But Jesus believed even the personal pronouns were inspired. Let me show you a third example. Just turn over a page backwards to Matthew 22, verse 23. Matthew chapter 22, verse 23. Starts off saying, The same day Sadducees came to him, who say there, are no, there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Now let me give you some context here. The Sadducees and Pharisees, although they team up against Jesus really weren't friends. They, they, were, they always argued with each other and had radically different beliefs. The Sadducees were like liberal rationalists. Therefore, they didn't believe in, in a resurrection right, or an afterlife. They only believed that the first five books, right, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Scripture, which Moses was the author of, was inspired. None of the, the Scriptures past Deuteronomy was inspired, in other words. The problem is, there is no reference to a resurrection in the Pentateuch. And there's no reference to an afterlife in the Pentateuch. In fact, the Pharisees, who were like conservatives, who, conservative legalists, who believed in a resurrection, would argue with the Sadducees about the resurrection, and this was a common argument that would go back and forth between these two groups, but they never could prove that there was a resurrection or an afterlife from the Pentateuch. There's plenty of other places in the Old Testament that, that, that prove that there is an afterlife and a resurrection, but they never could do it from the Pentateuch. So that's the context here. They, they asked him a question. They're trying to trick Jesus because they're trying to um, get him in a corner where... He has to admit that there is no resurrection. So look at verse 24. He says this, saying, this is the, the um, Sadducees, saying, Teacher, Moses said, okay, Moses the author of the Pentateuch, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now he's quoting Levitic, Leviticus here. Again, this is the Pentateuch. This is the law, right? So they make up this wild story. Verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh, they all died. And after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. I think a better question is asking why the sixth and seventh brother married her after the first five, but the point is to try to trap Jesus. So whose wife is she going to be? Verse 29, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong, and listen to this, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. 
In other words, he equates the scriptures with the power of God. You know, the Bible does this often. How did God create everything? His word. Hebrews 1, 3, it says that Jesus holds the universe together by the power of his word. Scriptures are powerful, in other words. Let me read it again. But Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you neither, or you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. In other words, there's no marriage in heaven. But listen to what Jesus says next, verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? He's quoting scripture. What was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. You know where he's quoting here? He's quoting Exodus 3, 6 at the burning bush. We're familiar with this. Over and over again in Exodus, he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Hundreds, this was, the burning bush was hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. In Exodus 3, 6, he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Therefore, Jesus concludes that, listen, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, they're all living. There is an afterlife at the burning bush. After they have died, he says, I am still their God because there's an afterlife. Look, look what verse 33 says. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. My guess is that they've heard this argument between the Sadducees and Pharisees for years and years and years. And the Pharisees who knew the Bible better than anyone could never prove it. And Jesus comes and proves it. Listen to how Jesus bases his whole argument off of one tense and one verb. A word, I am, one being verb, one tense, a word that was written thousands of years before he walked the face of the earth, before he quotes it. I am instead of I was. Once again, the only way Jesus makes such an argument one tense of one verb thousands of years earlier, the only way he makes this argument is if he is assuming that the word of God is inerrant, inspired, preserved over the centuries. God inspired Moses to write, I am, instead of I was, in other words. According to Jesus, listen, even the tenses of the verbs are inspired by God. Therefore, there is not a mistake, even down to the smallest details. It's all inerrant. Again, I just want to say, when I get up here and parse every word and tense of a passage and look at the syntax of a verse and do word studies, I'm just trying to do my best to interpret Scripture in the way that Jesus did as if every word, every tense, every personal pronoun is inspired and therefore inerrant. There's no errors in Scripture. 
I think this is what Paul meant in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best, meaning work hard at this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Treat the word as if it is truly the word of God. Treat the word as if it's inerrant. It's how Jesus handled the scriptures. It's really how the apostles handled the scriptures too in the New Testament. I don't have time to go into how they handled it, but they handled it the same exact way Jesus did, as if it was inspired by God and therefore inerrant. So this is why we're adding the word inerrant. The first proposed amendment is this. The scriptures, Old and New Testament, are the divinely inspired word of God and infallible and inerrant in their original writings. Now, we're going to look at two other changes, and I'm going to go through these very quickly, even though they're deep concepts. And I did this first service, and I realized it was a lot. So, buckle up. (laughs) Um, I I have this, this first, this second change, I guess, that I'm about to talk about. I did do two different sermons. In fact, there's four different sermons on it. And and if you're interested, I can point you to it. It's concerning the Trinity. But let me just read the proposed change. This is the second change. It's found on page three of our bylaws. It currently reads this. There is only one God who as creator of the universe manifests himself in three persons, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit. Now the proposed change is to add the words living and true and change manifest in to eternally exist in. The opposed amendment then would be this. There is only one living and true God who as creator of the universe eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now the purpose for this change is twofold, but one of the purposes is that the word manifest is not clear, and there is a danger that someone could interpret this as a false doctrine of modalism. Now, manifest is not necessarily wrong, but it could be interpreted wrong, and that's why we're changing it. So let me start with adding the words living and true. Why, why add the words living and true? Simply because there are many gods, lowercase g, many false gods, but there's only one living and true God. So it just brings clarity. Again, the proposed amendment is this. There is only one living and true God who as creator of the universe eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, the second change, again, we're getting rid of that word manifest. So let me explain. The Bible as a whole claims three things about God, very consistently. The first one is this. God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The second claim is this. Each person is fully divine. In other words, fully God. The third claim is this. There is one God. Therefore, God is one in essence, three in persons. So let's just look at these three claims. I'm going to do this quickly, I know. um, And I'm going to just give one example for everything, even though there are way more than one example. But the first claim is this. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. And again, one example, even though there's more than this, this is my favorite example, is Jesus' baptism. So Matthew 3.16 says this, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, 
the heavens opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Three persons there, clearly distinct The spirit descending like a dove. The father who said, this is my son and the son who is being baptized. Therefore, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. Again, there's many passages, but let's keep going. The second claim is this. They are all fully God, meaning they're all divine. I'll give one example for each again. One for the Father, one for the Son, one for the Holy Spirit. Um, The the Father being God is really not debated by anyone, um, but let me just give you a verse, Ephesians 4, 6. One God and Father of all. Very simple. There's a ton of verses Uh, that show the divinity of God, the fact that he's just called God, Theos, right? Jesus is God. Let me give you one example, even though there are many examples. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and we just recently talked about this, that that phrase itself, right? He's quoting Genesis, in the beginning, in Genesis, God. But for John, in the beginning was the word. And John makes this very clear that this is Jesus. The word became flesh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Holy Spirit is God. Acts 5, 3. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have con- contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Verse 4, you have not lied to men, but to God. Again, there's many more examples, but just think of the divine titles. The Father is given the name Theos over and over and over again in Scripture. That's just interpreted God. Jesus is given the name Lord over and over and over again in the New Testament. And we have seen that even more than Theos, that may be a more divine title because it points back to the name of God, Yahweh. And the Spirit is given the title Holy. Therefore, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, all three fully God, yet the Bible is very clear there is one God in essence. Deuteronomy 4, 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord, that's Yahweh, and there is no other besides me, there is no God. One God. It was interesting as we went over Philippians chapter 2, and we see that Paul quotes this poem talking about Jesus. There is only one God, and I can go on and on and on and on and on and on in the scriptures about there being only one God. It's what separated Israel from the pagan nations. They were monotheistic instead of polytheistic. They believed in one God. Therefore, God is three in persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, And there is one God in essence. Another way of saying this is there is one true God 
who has revealed himself to exist in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The early church really wrestled with this doctrine and, and concluded that God is one in essence and three in persons. Then, after that, they started seeing Trinitarian passage that agree with this doctrine, passages that just agree with this doctrine. Let me give you a couple. There's way more than these three, but here's just three. First Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God. Or Matthew twenty eight nineteen. this is my favorite. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, in the Greek, singular, one name, not names, in the one name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And again, there's many, many more passages. Uh, and the, the, these passages really line up um, with the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, it, again, it, if you're interested, I would encourage you to listen to the sermons I've preached on this. Uh, I, I went through the biblical um, explanation, and then I tried to answer, is the Trinity um, rationally logical? And I try to answer that question, and I come to the conclusion, yes, it's, it should be expected because of what we see in reality. And I'll just give you that. You can go look up the sermon. Um, we see perfect unity and diversity in the Trinity. In fact, what do we live in? When I say what is expected in reality, we live in a universe, unity and diversity. What are we, a church? One church with diverse people everywhere. What's a marriage? One flesh, diverse. All these reflections of the Trinity everywhere, right, in the physical world. God is perfect unity and diversity, and he made a world full of unity and diversity. I mean, everything. I keep, I'm getting lost here. Now, there is an ancient heresy that denies the scriptural teaching, and, and this heresy was called modalism. Right? This heresy, I believe, overemphasized God's unity to the destruction of his diversity. Again, the Bible paints God as a perfect unity, one essence, diversity, three persons. When you overemphasize one over the other, you end up in a heresy. Modalism emphasized God's oneness to the destruction of the three persons. So let me just explain. Modalism is the ideology that claims God is one person that acts in three different modes. In other words, he's one God, one person, not three persons, that acts in three different modes. God appeared as the Father in the Old Testament, as Jesus in the Gospel, and the Spirit in the present age, in the church age. Right? But we just looked at one passage, Matthew, and that destroys this argument, right? Jesus' baptism, how can he be one God talking to himself like that? The Bible over and over and over again shows that they're diverse, right? Three distinct persons. But modalism believes that they're not distinct persons, but instead one person in three modes. Let me give you an analogy to explain this heresy. And if you've used this to try to explain the Trinity, it's a heresy, I'm sorry. But don't use it again. So uh, here's an analogy, right? I'm a son, I'm a father, and I'm also a husband, when I interact with my father, I'm a son. 
When I interact with my kids, I'm a, a father. When I interact with my wife, I'm a husband. Sometimes it's like interchangeable, especially like like Christmas when we're all together. But that's me being in three different roles, three different modes, right? The doctrine of the Trinity makes it very clear that it's not one person in three modes. It's three separate persons throughout the whole Old Testament. So the proposed change in the bylaws is to add the word living and true and change manifest himself in to eternally exist in because manifest could give the impression that we believe God is one person who sometimes manifests himself as the father, sometimes manifests himself as the son, and sometimes manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. Although I don't think the word manifests is necessarily a heresy, it could be interpreted this way, and so we wanted to clear it up in the bylaws. So therefore, the proposed amendment, there is only one God living and true, God the creator of the universe eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That was a lot. The third change, and I'll be really quick on this one. The third change is found on page six of the bylaws. It just currently reads, the office of elder, of the elder, that's the title, and there's really no definition or clarification what that means. So the proposed change is to add definition and clarification. Right? The proposed amendment is this. Add the, add the following statement. We're going to add this statement under the title. The term elder, pastor, and overseer, episkopos, are used simultaneously in the New Testament, or synonymously, I'm sorry, are used synonymously in the New Testament and represent the same office. These terms will be used interchangeably throughout this document. And from this point on, when you see elder, pastor or overseer those are the same offices in the the bylaws now purpose of this is to bring clarification and we've spent a lot of times i've done two sermons on this too um so let's just real quickly look at those words elder in greek is um episcop or uh not episcopos i'm sorry uh presbyteros just got loud presbyteros which we're the word we get presbyterian from uh, it means a person of responsibility and authority in matters of religious concerns. It denotes an older person, but more someone that's mature in the faith. Right? Overseer slash bishop, which is translated sometimes overseer and sometimes translated bishop, depending on your translation, is episkopos in scripture. It means one that oversees or leads the church. Finally, pastor is poimain, and that just simply means someone that, that shepherds sheep. The Latin word is pastor, but it, it's just Latin for shepherd, person that shepherds sheep. There are three different titles, but the same office. Different names for the same person. In other words, I'm a pastor, I'm also an elder, I'm also an overseer. All our elders are pastors and overseers. Because scripture is very clear that these words are interchangeable. In fact, if you think that there should be a separation between elders and pastors in the New Testament, that those are two different offices, then there is no qualification for a pastor. Because the qualifications for elders only list elders and overseers. It doesn't say pastor anywhere in the two places that we see qualification for elders. Therefore, it's obvious that pastor, elder, and overseer are the same office, three different titles for the same person. Let me give you just one example. There are many examples, but 1 Peter 5.1 says this. 
So I exhort the elders, that's presbyteros, among you. I exhort the elders among you. So he's talking about elders as a faithful elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd, that's poimain, that's pastor. This is what Peter is saying. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's episkopos, overseer. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In this passage, the elders are pastors, right? They're shepherds, and they're overseers. One office, three titles, elder, pastor, overseer. Well, why three titles? Well, I think the three titles of the same person emphasize three different things that need to be seen in that person. First, the title elder emphasizes the character of that person, who that person is, right? Someone mature in the faith. The title bishop or overseer emphasizes the function, what that person does, what the man does. He oversees the church. And the title shepherd or pastor emphasizes the attitude. In other words, he oversees an elders with love and care like a shepherd loves his sheep. Side note. This is why we call our elder board a pastoral team. And we use that term pastoral team a lot just to get questions. Why do you call yourself a pastoral team? Because most churches are used to an elder board, but they separate the elders from the pastors as two different offices. We think that's unbiblical. I'm not trying to cast um, shade on any other church. But we're just trying to be as biblical as possible. Elders are pastors. Pastors are elders. So we, we often say pastoral team because that is confusing to a lot of people. It makes you ask why, so then we can explain it. Sometimes you'll hear us say elder board too, but we mean the same thing. So the third proposed amendment, add the following statement. The terms elder, pastor, and overseer, episkopos, are used simon- synonymously in the New Testament and represent the same office these terms will be used interchangeably throughout this document. From this point on in the bylaws, this reflects this definition, and there's a number of other changes that happen after this, but they're mostly related to making sure that the office seems the same within our bylaws, that, that the places that it seems like it separates pastors from elders, we're, we're making them the same, if that makes sense. So there's a couple other changes there. Um, real quick, so I know we're past time. A couple other changes. We, we've changed the title senior pastor that's in the bylaws to lead teaching pastors. Now, I'm the one, when I got hired, I really pushed this. And the reason for it was that I thought teaching pastor, that title was, was more biblical. And I can give you an argument for that. There's nothing wrong with the term senior pastor. I also wanted to make sure that lead was in there because I know, and I want to make this clear, I know whoever's in this pulpit the most is going to be the one that the church looks at to lead in times that are hard. And coming into the position, I I accepted that responsibility. I made that clear to the elders because that's just how it is. Even though we consider each other co-equals, besides the fact those that teach deserve double honor. And in that context of Timothy, I believe that's pay so that they can teach well, they can spend, do their best to handle God's word well, they can spend all week really dividing God's word and give a good teaching of God's word. I believe that that's why those that teach are kind of separated from the other elders to be paid. And that's why I wanted the title teaching pastor. 
that makes sense. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk with you about it. The other thing that we've made clear in the bylaws is that you can be a member at any age. So let me talk to you, all of you kids that are in this room that are under the age of 18. You can be a member. If you've put your faith in Christ, you've been baptized, I'm, I'm challenging you to go to the membership class. Go to the membership class and become a member. Teenagers, junior high, even under that, if you truly have put your faith in Christ and been baptized, tell your parents, I want to go to the membership class, I want to become a member. We've just made it clear that you can't vote until you're 18. Just because we want to make sure there's wisdom in any type of voting that we do as a church. And so, but I have Zach tasked to tell the high schoolers to become members, to get baptized, become members. Um, I think that's important. So let me just end this sermonette and this housekeeping, I don't know what you want to call this, this clarification, with some application, because we need some application, right? Um, And and this really has nothing to do with the bylaws, even though we went over that, and I know it was a lot. Um, Next door, we're having a small group fair. You've heard that a couple of times. And I just want to challenge you, if you're not part of a small group, I just really encourage you to find one. Um, If you really want to be a part of this church body, there's two things I would encourage you to do. One, become a member. And if you, if you haven't heard my membership sermon, go listen to that one. Become a member. Two, we really encourage you to be a part of a small group. And the reason is, our church is just at a size that you can come in, kind of sneak in and, and leave. And really not dig in deep with people. And we want to make sure that you're doing that within small groups. And I, I love the small group I'm a part of. They've become my brothers and sisters for sure. And uh, they're there for me when we need something, and we're there for them when they need something. All those one another's in Scripture happen best when you intimately know people. And we see that happening in the small group. So I would just encourage you to go check out and see if there's any small group that would fit you. We have them all throughout Tehachapi now, and there's a bunch that are getting started up. So that's my encourage to you. Can I pray for you guys? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that this was a lot this morning, Lord. I know we covered a lot of ground and really some deep theology too. Lord, I pray that uh, if anything, it gets us thinking, Lord, what your word truly teach, what it says about itself, the example that that Jesus gave to us and how to handle the scripture, the example that the the New Testament authors and the apostles give us and how to handle scriptures, what, what it says about itself, Lord. And I pray that we model that, that we truly see the word of God as more important than food itself that we starve for the word of God when we don't hear it and read it after a short period of time. God, I pray that's true for the individuals of this church. And I pray that this church is always founded, Lord. Protect us, Lord. Lead us this way, that it's always founded on the word of God. And everything we do, we check with your word. And and if there's corrections that need to be made, Lord, that we make them. God, I pray that that's the testimony of this church, Lord. Be with us, God. Be with us as we continue to move forward in this just uncertain times, really, Lord, that you would protect us and guide us. In your son's name, amen.